So we'll open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. We'll begin at the end of chapter 9 and, and work our way into chapter 10 this morning. I'm really enjoying going through 1 Samuel. I pray that, that you are too and that it's a blessing and that the Lord is, is using these messages in our lives. Have you ever seen one of those commercials for a new medicine that warns you of the side effects? And a lot of times it seems like the side effects are a lot worse than the original ailment. Side effects include heart attack, stroke, paralysis, and death. You've seen those commercials. You know, my elbow might not have been hurting that bad after all. I think I'll just put up with it. Those, those warnings are necessary, I guess, but they, they sure are funny sometimes. I saw a warning this week and it made me smile. It was a warning for the Bible. It said, warning, this book is habit-forming. Regular use causes loss of anxiety, decreased appetite for lying, cheating, stealing, and hating. The symptoms include increased sensations of love, peace, joy, and compassion. I, I like that. We take medicine because we want it to help us and to change us. And similarly, the Word of God helps us and changes us but in a much deeper and more profound way. And this morning as we, we read the story of Samuel anointing Saul as the first king of Israel, Saul will become a changed man. And he's changed because of the Holy Spirit of God and because of the Word of God that Samuel speaks. And as we look at this story, I want you to be asking yourself the question of, do, do I humbly allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to change me? Do I let God's Word speak to me and His Spirit convict me and change me? So in verse 26 of chapter 9, that's where we'll begin. Saul has stayed the night at Samuel's house after they, they spent uh, the previous day together after they met. But before Saul returns home, Samuel will anoint him as king. So look at verse 26 of chapter 9. We'll read through verse 1 of chapter 10 right now. And they arose early, and it came to pass about the spring of the day, the Samuel called Saul to the top of the house and said, Up, that I may send thee away. And Saul arose, and they went out both of them, he and Samuel abroad. And as they were going down to the end of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Bid the servant pass on before us. And he passed on, But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him. And said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? So, uh, Samuel accompanies Saul and his servant on their way out of the city that morning. But finally, he tells Saul, Let your servant go on ahead. Uh, and that happens. The servant goes on ahead of him. Saul can catch up later. There's something very important and very personal at this point that Samuel needs to tell Saul that he needs to share with him. It's obviously something of great importance because notice what he says at the end of verse 27. He says, that I may show thee the word of God. That I may show thee the word of God. Remember when the people of Israel asked for a king, it displeased Samuel. Samuel was not happy with their decision. It hurt him. It displeased him. And yet, God chose Samuel to be the one to set everything in motion and to be the one who will anoint the king. And what's amazing to me about Samuel is his obedience, even though their request upset him. He wasn't getting his way, so to speak. He doesn't pout. 
He doesn't turn his back on the people. He doesn't turn his back on the Lord. He obeys. Even though that upset, the request upset him, he still follows the Lord's direction. And now we see him obediently declaring to Saul the word of God. The idea of the word show there at the end of verse 27, it literally means to cause to hear. What does it mean to cause someone to hear it? It means you say it. It means you proclaim it. He would be literally, Samuel would cause Saul to hear God's word. He's not going to offer his opinion. He's not going to offer his view or his thoughts. He would proclaim God's word. As a pastor and a preacher, that really speaks to me. There is nothing about me that makes me any better or more important than you. There is nothing about uh, me that makes my opinions better or more important than your opinions. You didn't come here today to hear my opinions. They're not worth much. They're not infallible. They're not powerful. They cannot change your life. But God's Word can. God's Word is infallible. It is powerful. It can change your life. And so, as your pastor, it is my humbling and great responsibility to cause you to hear God's Word. Not what Matt Thornton may think, but to cause you to hear what God says. And that's what Samuel did to Saul. I'm afraid that too many sermons today are more like motivational speeches from a halftime locker room than they are a man standing up and proclaiming what God says. Motivational speeches may have their time and their place, but they're not life-changing. Not the way God's Word is. Proclaim the Word of God. Explain it. Teach it. In fact, the ability to teach is the only skill listed by Paul when he gives the qualifications of a pastor. Everything else that Paul says has to do with a man's character. But being apt to teach is a skill. It's an ability. It's a trait. Being able to teach and proclaim the Word of God is important and it is vital. But you can't just teach anything. It has to be the Word of God. And so Samuel, even though he is not pleased with the Israelites' request for a king, he still obeys God and faithfully proclaims his word to Saul. And the word that he will share involves the anointing of Saul. And that's verse 1 there. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 10. I know we read it a minute ago, but he says, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him, and said, Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee to be captain over his inheritance? This flask of olive oil, Saul, uh, Samuel took it, and he poured it on Saul's head, and he kissed Saul. The humility and submission of Samuel here amazes me. I've already mentioned that, that he was upset at their request for a king. Not to mention the fact that he is probably the most well-known and most respected man in Israel. He is Samuel, the greatest prophet since Moses. His words carried weight. And even though he was displeased at Israel's request for a king, he is the first Israelite to swear allegiance and pay homage to Saul by kissing him. 
Samuel was submitting to God's will even though he knew their, the, the request of Israel meant they were rejecting God. But God said, give them what they want and go anoint this man. And he does. And even the great prophet Samuel submits to Saul's now God-given authority. It's amazing to me. You say, well, what did it mean that Saul was anointed? You know, what did all of that signify? This is, this is so great. Up to this point in the Bible, the only things that were anointed were the tabernacle and its furnishings and Aaron and his sons who would serve as priests. Okay? From now, from this point on, we will also see kings anointed and prophets anointed. So three kinds of people will be anointed in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings. We also have the tabernacle and its furnishings anointed earlier. And the anointing set them apart. Think about the tabernacle and you think about Aaron and his sons. When they were anointed, it, it, it was a demonstration of their uh, being consecrated for the Lord. They were set apart for God's service. The tabernacle used specially for worshiping God. The priest, that, that mediator between God and the people who would offer the sacrifices. They were anointed. And now it's no different for the king. And we've got to understand that. And we, we wish that Saul would have understood that more. Even now that we're coming to the beginning of the monarchy in Israel, when Saul is anointed as king, it didn't mean that he had all authority and that he had all power to rule Israel in any way that he saw fit. Similar to the tabernacle. Similar to the high priests, the anointing of Saul meant that he was now separated for God's service. He was set apart to the Lord. That's why he's called the Lord's anointed. Even in verse 1, what does Samuel say? Is it not because the Lord hath anointed thee? He's not Samuel's anointed. He's the Lord's anointed. And he would serve Israel as king under God. And that's so important to understand. God did not surrender any rights when the Israeli monarchy began. God did not give up any authority. He didn't forfeit any claims that he had on Israel. What does Samuel say at the end of verse 1? Whose inheritance is this? God's inheritance, right? He has anointed you to be captain over His inheritance. This is not your inheritance, Saul. These, this is still God's people. God was still God. Israel still His people. But now there would be an earthly king serving Israel under God as His anointed and set-apart servant. We'll say, we can you even anoint someone as king and then say they're under someone else's authority? Of course you can. The Egyptians did it. The Egyptians never anointed their pharaohs. But they would anoint vassal kings who would serve under Pharaoh. And that seems to be the way God is setting up the Israeli monarchy here. God is not forfeiting power. But Saul is now the vassal king under God. God is still in control. God is still sovereign. The earthly king of Israel was still subject to God... And God would use his prophets as the mediators. If you think the king had all the power, who just anointed him as king? 
the profit. It's almost like the checks and balances type system you think about in, in, our, in our government. The prophets would bring God's word to the king. The prophets would anoint the kings. And so when the kings of Israel served and submitted themselves to God's ultimate authority, when they listened to the word of the prophet, when they obeyed the word of the prophets, they were blessed and it pleased God. But when they disobeyed and they subverted God's authority, they were not. You can read through 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings and, and Chronicles. When the kings knew their place under God, it was great. When the kings tried to place themselves ahead of God, it wasn't great times in Israel. And so the famous and respected man of God, Samuel, is anointing and kissing this young, tall, good-looking Benjamite. And I'm sure Saul, he may know a little bit of what's going on, but if he didn't, if he was unsure of the words at the end of verse 1, let him know, why are you, why are you anointing me? God has chosen you to be captain over his people. You're God's choice. Really the people's choice that God's letting them have. And I'm sure Saul was frightened and anxious and worried and scared and confused and all those things. Just yesterday he's a man out looking for his father's donkeys. And now the greatest man in Israel is anointing him as king? Samuel, are you sure you've got the right guy? Did you, have you made a mistake? Are you sure that I can do this? And so in verse 2 through 8, Samuel will continue to give God's word to Saul in a way that he will offer several different signs that will come to pass that day to let Saul know, I haven't made a mistake. That this is true. It will confirm the decision. The signs will prove to Saul that he is indeed to serve as king. They will prove that he can trust the words of Samuel because everything Samuel says is going to happen. And they're going to teach Saul a few lessons about God and what he will do for him and lessons that we can learn from as well. Look at verse 2 through 8 as Samuel gives these signs to Saul. When thou art departed from me today, then thou shalt find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin and Zelzah. And they will say unto thee, The donkeys which thou, which thou wentest to seek are found. And lo, thy father hath left the care of the donkeys and sorroweth for you, saying, What shall I do for my son? Then shalt thou go on forward from thence, and thou shalt come to the plain of Tabor, and there shalt thou meet uh, three men going up to God to Bethel. One carrying three kids, three kid goats, and another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a bottle of wine. They will salute thee, and give thee two loaves of bread, which thou shalt receive of their hands. After that thou shalt come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines, and it shall come to pass, when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them. And they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shall be turned into another man. And let it be, when these signs are come unto thee, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do. These signs give a lot to Saul. The first sign would be that these two men would inform him that the donkeys he were looking for, that he was looking for, they're found. And now your dad's kind of worrying about you because you've been gone for four days now. What was that supposed to teach Saul? One author says, I, I like the way he words it, this was a good experience for the young king for it assured him that God could solve his problems. 
He's out looking three days for these donkeys and can't find them. And once they go to Samuel, Samuel says, I already found. You guys are looking for something that's not lost. God could solve his problems. And that, that author goes on to say one of Saul's greatest failures as a leader was his inability to take his hands off situations and let God work. We saw that in the previous chapter. It wasn't Saul's idea to turn to God. It wasn't Saul's idea to turn to the prophet Samuel. It was his servants. And even the servants' suggestion didn't come until after three unsuccessful days of searching. In your life, God should not be your last resort. Don't turn to God when everything you've tried doesn't work. Turn to God first. That's your first move. He can help with problems. Let your requests be made known unto God. Something Saul needed to learn. He needed to learn that God could help solve his problems as king, just like he did with the lost animals. Saul, they're found. The second sign that he would be given was that as he's still traveling, three men who were going to Bethel to worship would salute him and give him two loaves of bread. Normally, the loaves that the worshipers carried would only be given to the priests. It was reserved, the, these loaves reserved for someone serving God and having his provisions met by God. But now isn't that Saul, that he's anointed and a servant of God? And so by Saul accepting this bread and the men giving him this bread, it was showing Saul that God would take care of his needs. Whatever he needed, God would provide for him as long as he would serve. A king would need a lot of resources. And God demonstrates through this act that I'll, I'll take care of that, Saul. And the same is true in our lives today, right? Hasn't God promised to meet our every need if we seek his kingdom first? Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. He mentioned that it's heathens, it's pagans, it's, it's the unbelieving world who worry about what they're going to eat, who worry about what they're going to wear. But he says, your heavenly Father already knows you need that. Why would you worry about things that God already knows you need? Just trust Him to provide. And that's what Jesus taught. All these things will be added unto you if you seek His kingdom first. Just trust God to take care of you. And you serve Him and he will. Saul needed to understand that. The third sign is that he will meet this group of prophets and the Holy Spirit would come upon him and he would prophesy and he would be changed. And the fact that the Lord's Spirit would come upon Saul, that would be absolute proof that he's the Lord's anointed. It should have taught him also that God would give him the power to do anything he asked of him. Saul wasn't alone. God was with him. And we can apply that to our lives as well, just like the other two lessons. God will not command us to do something that he will not empower us to do, that he won't give us the grace to do, that he won't help us to accomplish. Every command that God has given us to do in Scripture, he will help us do that if we'll trust him and if we'll submit to him. God doesn't set his people up for failure. He's giving Saul everything he needs to thrive as king. Sadly, we know how it turns out. It's not God's fault. 
It's not that God wasn't there for Saul. It's that Saul rejected it. Saul, Saul disobeyed. But it wasn't because God wasn't there and that God wasn't helping. Verse 8, and we'll talk more about the, the Saul being changed in just a minute, but verse 8 is really not another sign like we think of these others, but it's instructions. It's a command uh, to go to Gilgal and wait. One thing this does is it, it lets Saul know that even as king, he was to be waiting upon the Lord and waiting upon the prophet. He needed to understand that. Listening to Saul's messages and obeying, uh, listening to Samuel's messages and Samuel's words was very important, vitally important for the king. And if you know the story, verse 8 here gives us some foreshadowing. This event doesn't happen that, that day like these other three signs do. This event happens about two years later. It's in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel. If you turn there, we'll read a few verses in just a minute. Instead of waiting on Samuel for seven days, what does Saul do? The people start to kind of scatter and leave, and Saul gets anxious. And instead of waiting on Samuel to arrive to offer the sacrifices and give him direction, Saul just takes matters into his own hands. And Saul offers the sacrifices, and as soon as he's finished, who comes up? Samuel. Look at verse 13 and 14 of chapter 13. 1 Samuel 13, 13. And Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee. For now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever. God did not set Saul up for failure. Saul could have had his kingdom established forever had he obeyed and served God. But verse 14, But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart. And the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. That in chapter 13 is this Gilgal episode that Saul kind of alludes to there in, in chapter 10. But that's a couple years away at this point in chapter 10. Saul and Samuel don't know how it's going to all turn out. Right now, God is confirming to Saul his anointing, proving that he's there, proving that he can trust Samuel, showing he can solve problems, showing he can meet Saul's needs, that he can empower him. Well, at least that's what Samuel said. But how do I know if this is true? I mean, are these things really going to happen? Look at, look at verse 9 and 10. Back in chapter 10. And it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all those signs came to pass that day. And when they came thither to the hill, behold, a company of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. I think it's kind of it's interesting that very anticlimactically we're not told anything about the first two signs coming to pass. They did. <laughs> Everything happened. You can always trust God's Word. If God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. It was that way in Saul's life. What Samuel said came to happen exactly. And that's another lesson for Saul is that he can trust the words of Samuel because they're the words of God. Even all the way back in chapter 3 we read that none of Samuel's words fell to the ground. If Samuel said something, it happened because he was speaking God's word to the people. We're told there in verse 9... When, Samuel, uh, when Saul turned away from Samuel to, to go on his way, it says God gave him another heart. And that goes along with the words of verse 6 that we didn't really talk about much, but that it said Saul would be turned into another man. So what is, 
What does all that mean and what does that entail? Don't think of this as Saul's salvation experience. It's, it's not what it is. Don't, don't think New Testament, you know, new man, regeneration type things here. This was God acting specifically in Saul's life in order to make him kingly. Instead of having the heart of an average Israelite son, like he had the day before, doing what his father asked him to do, he would now have the heart of a leader. He would, have, he would no longer be a son looking for lost donkeys. He is now God's anointed, God's servant to serve as king. And so God has turned his heart in another direction. And that's really the idea of the word. Turned in verse 6 and gave in verse 10 are the same word. And it means to turn or even overturn. God overturned Saul's heart that day. He turned it around. He's not just a son anymore. He's a king now. And, and I love the way one man describes it. He says this, this refers primarily to a different attitude and outlook. This young farmer would now act and think like a leader, the king of a nation, a warrior statesman whose responsibility it was to listen to God and obey his will. It's a changed man. Not a salvation thing. But he's a changed man because God has turned his heart in another direction. And we're given more details, really, maybe about why and how that even happened with the third sign, right? Verse uh, 10, when the, he, he met this company of prophets, what does the last part of the verse say? What came upon him? Spirit of God, right? The Spirit of God came upon him. Again, not his salvation experience, but it's like, like the time of the judges. In fact... When the Spirit came upon judges before Samson, there were different words used that were, I'll say it this way, not as violent. The Spirit rested upon him, he clothed him, he came upon him, something like that. But when Samson was described as having the Spirit come upon him, it was a different word. And it meant that the Spirit rushed upon him, that he penetrated him, that he forced his way upon him. That's what the word means. And if you read the story of Samson, he's not a very godly man. And so in a very picturesque way, the author of the book of Judges tells us that the Spirit forces his way into, Samuel's li uh, into Samson's life. And that's the same word used here about Saul. It's only used of Samson and Saul. I don't think that's an accident. Samson, a very ungodly man. Read his story. And now we've got Saul, who is so spiritually indifferent that he doesn't even know Samuel lives five miles away from him. His servant has to be the one to tell him that. And so God's Spirit forces himself upon Saul. He rushes upon Saul just like he did with Samson. It's the same word used. And so God would use Saul like he used Samson. And verse 11 and verse 12, we'll read in a minute. Verse 10 tells us that Saul prophesied. When the Spirit came upon him, he prophesied just like these prophets did when they were coming down from the mount. And that was absolutely unexpected if you knew anything about Saul. Look at verse 11 and 12. And it came to pass when all, all that knew him before time saw that, behold, he prophesied among the uh, prophets. Then the people said one to another, What is it that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And one of the same place answered and said, But who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the prophets? 
Saul prophesying was so unexpected that it became a proverbial saying used when someone acted extremely out of character. Is Saul among the prophets? Why is he acting like that? That's how, that's how surprising this was. That's how much God turned his heart that day. Nobody would have ever thought Saul would be a prophet. But if God changed him into a prophet, he would be. And that's what one of the signs was. God will give you another heart. You'll meet this band of prophets and you'll prophesy too. And he did. But it surprised everybody. They were shocked. I got to thinking about that. I sure hope that people wouldn't think it out of character for us to live right, for us to speak the truth, to find out we go to church, to find out that we're Christians. You're a Christian? Is Saul one of the prophets? Hopefully that we live and we act and we speak in such a way around people that when, hopefully, inevitably, that conversation happens, when we are able to invite them to church or witness to them, they don't... Their mouths aren't wide open. I would have never pegged you as a Christian. That's the way it was for Saul here. Saul, one of the prophets? I hope that we're living and speaking and acting in a way that, that people say, you know, I, I thought you probably went to church. It doesn't really surprise me that, that you're talking to me about Jesus. You seem, you seem different. You seem careful. You seem holy. I pray that every member of North Bryant is living like that. If it shocks people that we're Christians, then we're probably doing something wrong. When Saul finished prophesying, he and his servants went up to the high place, which is probably the one outside of his hometown in Gibeah, and he met his uncle. We'll read that in verse 13 and 16. And Saul will tell his uncle about the donkeys, because he mentions that we've seen Samuel. And the uncle says, what did he say? And Saul will tell him about the donkeys, but he says nothing about being anointed king, nothing about the signs that, come, that have come to pass, Nothing about anything involving the kingdom. Look at verse 13 through 16. When he had made an end of prophesying, he came to the high place. Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, Whither went ye? And he said, To seek the donkeys. And when, they, and when we saw that they were nowhere, we came to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, Tell me, I pray thee, what Samuel said unto you. And Saul said unto his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys were found. But of the matter of the kingdom, whereof Samuel spoke, he told him not. Didn't say anything about it. It may have been a little wise on Saul's part here not to say anything yet to his uncle about this. Perhaps. Samuel hasn't confirmed this to all Israel yet. This, is, this anointing wasn't even done before Saul's servant. Remember, the servant passed on ahead. This was just between Saul and Samuel right now. So there may be some wisdom to Saul withholding this. But I think there's also some hesitation and some fear on his, on his behalf. Because next up in, in the chapter, when, when Samuel does confirm Saul to Israel, what's he doing? He's hiding behind the suitcases. So... Even after all of these signs has been fulfilled and God has changed his heart and he's prophesied, he's still wary. He's still, he's still a little scared and concerned and I'm sure I would have been too. You want me to be king? But Saul needed to know that he could trust God. And if he would serve him and obey him, God would give him everything he needed to be successful. Saul's a very complex and intriguing man. 
He wasn't the most religious or the most spiritual man in Israel, and we know he would ultimately fail, but that day he was changed. What changed him was God's Word and God's Spirit. And God's Word and God's Spirit never oppose one another. They never work against each other. The Holy Spirit will never lead you to do something contrary to the Bible. Well, I know the Bible says this, but I just really felt the Spirit moving in me. Wasn't God's Spirit moving in you? If, if you thought it was, He was moving you to do something contrary to Scripture, the Word of God and the Spirit of God always, always work together. And as we read and study the Bible, God's Spirit helps us understand it. He, he allows us to apply it to our lives and He convicts us to obey it, making us better servants of God. And so God's Word and God's Spirit will change you always for the better if you will listen and you will obey. And that should be our desire even after we're saved to continue to grow, to continue to mature and change for His glory so that we can better serve Him. Don't ever, ever be so arrogant as to think that God cannot change me anymore. I don't, I don't need changing. God's done pretty good with me. Like highways in Arkansas, we're all under construction. If you've repented and trusted Christ, your salvation is secure. But God is still working on you to mold you, to mature you, to grow you into the man or the woman that He wants you to be. And are you submissive to that? Say, well, I want to change. I want to be better. Then listen to God's Word and the convicting of His Spirit. The most important and most amazing change that will ever happen in your life happens when you repent of your sins and trust Christ to save you. And that's different than the change Saul had that day. You're delivered from the kingdom of darkness and moved into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You know what Christ means? Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. So when you say Christ and you say Messiah, you're saying the same thing. But what does it mean? Well, we actually saw the word Messiah today and you just didn't know it. That word anointed. In Hebrew, that word anointed sounds like Messiah. So Messiah and Christ, they both mean anointed one. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one of God. He is set apart for God's glory. Served the Father completely, perfectly. He submitted to the will of His Father all the way and through the death of the cross. God's Spirit didn't force Himself upon Jesus like Samson or Saul. God's Spirit rested fully upon Him. John says that the servant, uh, the Spirit did not rest upon him in measure or in part. He didn't just get a little bit of it. He didn't have a little bit of the Holy Spirit. He was full of the Holy Spirit. 
Isaiah describes Jesus like this, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That's the Spirit of Christ. Jesus is the true, ultimate, anointed one of God. What did I say were the three people that were anointed in the Old Testament? Prophets, priests, and kings. And Jesus is all three of those. Don't we have a song that says that? Prophet and priest and king? That's Jesus Christ. Allow the truth of God's Word and the conviction of His Spirit to change you this morning and become the person that God wants you to be. Would you stand? Let's bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for your spirit, and we pray that we will be humble enough to submit to your leadership as you mold us. Help us to serve you better each day. Help us to love you more and love one another, and just forgive us when we fail you. And if someone is here today who's lost, Lord, we pray for their salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.